This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Rabbi Eli Konfer. Eli is the president and CEO of Machon Hadar, which is one of the great institutions of adult Jewish learning in the world. Machon Hadar is educating a generation of adults, from young adults to senior citizens, in Jewish texts and ideas, and is institutionally demonstrating the eternal vibrancy that Jewish thought has to offer so many people. He is also a great thinker in his own right, a player coach in the world of Jewish thought. Given that Eli spent last year in Jerusalem writing a book about prayer, I asked him to come on the rabbi's husband to speak about prayer. And he said he would like to speak instead about the biblical verse, Genesis 15, 1 through 8, which actually has a lot to do with prayer. I don't know what it has to do with prayer, but every time I talk to Ellie, I learn so much. So I'm looking forward to learning today. Ellie, welcome to the rabbi's husband. Thank you so much. So tell us what happens in uh, Genesis 15, 1 through 8, and why is it meaningful to you? And then we'll get into what it has to do with prayer. Great. So Genesis 15 is right in the middle of the story of Abraham. And we often think about Abraham as the white knight of faith, the person who leaves his home and his family to follow God to a new country, and also is prepared to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, on the altar just because God told him to do so. But what I like about Genesis 15 is that it's a different window into Abraham's relationship with God that's actually much more complex than blind faith. Interesting. What are the complexities that present here? So the narrative and the story picks up after Abraham has just fought a war to rescue his nephew Lot from the hands of captivity. And God picks up on the dialogue and says, says to Avram directly, Altira, don't fear Avram. I'll be a shield for you. Your reward will be very great. So what we see here is God making a promise to Abraham, which was his name at the time, saying, you're going to have no reason to fear. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be a shield for you. And you're going to have a great reward. Yeah. So, so it sounds wonderful. God comes to him and says, I'm going to be your shield and you're going to have a great reward. I mean, what else could you offer somebody? God's going to protect you and give you a very great reward. And then Abraham says, what can you give me given that I am childless, indicating that all he really wants is a child? That's right. And I think the power of that response from Abraham is God had promised Abraham that he was going to have children way back in chapter 12. Interesting. Right. There's, you know, I'm not getting any younger and I don't see the children. And Abraham is saying, Mati Tainli, what can you give me? I don't have any children yet. And this random character named Damesek Eliezer, who seems to be some sort of servant, seems to be the only person around who's going to inherit his legacy. I think Abraham is really nervous about this unfulfilled promise from God. And he's basically telling God all the gold and silver and whatever the other equivalents in the ancient world were are not worth anything to me unless I have a child. He brings it right to God. He's not just accepting what God gave him and says, he's saying, what I really want, what I need as effectively the father of the Jewish people, though, of course, he doesn't say that, 
what, what I need in order to transmit is children. And I don't have it. Exactly. And I think that what's striking here is that this is the very first time that Avram ever speaks to God. Interesting. Like they've been hanging out for the last three chapters and God's been doing a lot of speaking and Avram's been doing a lot of doing. But this is the very first word that Avram says to God is, what can you give me? Mati Tainli, I don't have a child. And you haven't given the next verse, verse three, Avram continues and says, you know, you've never given me any seed, any children. And my, my household servant is going to inherit me. So he's really stuck on this, uh, on this point. And God basically acknowledges Abraham's need, not want, but need to have a child and tells him what? Yeah. So God actually doesn't strike down Abraham for being insolent or you know, rude, but rather just renews the promise that God had made earlier and says, that one's not going to inherit you. Your, your servant's not going to inherit you. Rather, an actual child who's going to come from your own body is going to inherit you. And then this very poignant scene where God takes Avram outside and tells him to look at the stars in the sky and count them if you're able to count them. And God says, that's how many children you're going to have. So God sort of hears Avram's complaint and ups the ante and says, it's not that you're just going to have one child, you're going to have so many children, it's going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And a magnificent, magnificent experience of living the Bible, and Eric and I did this, I think, two years ago, is you go to southern Israel and you go out in the desert at night and you look at the stars. And this is what Abraham was experiencing. And you can just see how powerful that message from God would have been. Just look at the stars in the great sky of southern Israel, which apparently even today is considered one of the great stargazing places in the world. Yeah, it's, this is not written for, uh, for city dwellers like ourselves. And I think that the uh, the powerful thing when you stare at the sky is the more you look at it, the more stars you see. You know, your eyes get adjusted and it's almost as if the stars themselves are multiplying before your eyes. And that's the promise that God articulates to Avram in this moment of Avram being, being very vulnerable and wanting to have a child. And I, I think one of the great insights in Judaism is actually something I learned from you on, on the Mahon Hadar site, which is you said there can be many truths emanating from the same passage. So it's, it's not a matter of, and the, your key insight was it's not a matter of interpretations or opinions. There are many truths that are not contradictory. And I think, and that was such a, a beautiful articulation with so many applications, including one here. So what are the truths that we see in the stars analogy? So God says, you're going to be like the stars. And that's such a rich analogy. He could have said, you're going to be like blades of grass or sand on the shore, but he didn't say that. He said, you're going to be like stars in the sky. So I think that's, telling us to ask, what about stars is there for us to emulate? Because that's what God's telling Abraham, your children will be like stars. So what are some of the ideas that you think we can learn from, from stars? Yeah, so I would say a couple of resonant images connected with stars. Stars obviously are emanating light, um, something that was created on the fourth day of creation. That's and right. we know from the prophet Isaiah that the Jewish people are meant to be an or, or la goyim, a light unto the nations. And so um, what it means to have this kind of progeny is not just that there'll be a lot of them, but they are able to emanate out uh, a powerful message to a broader audience. So a star shines forward. And that's, I think, the, the power of what it means for Avram to have those kinds of, of children. There's a connection to other people and not just a numbers issue. Absolutely. And, and Isaiah also says about stars, I believe, he says that uh, 
God knows them by name. He says, you can't count them, but God knows them by name. In other words, that each star, even the ancients knew, and they knew a lot about science. I mean, it's, it's, it's astonishing what we're discovering they knew, but the ancients knew that each star is unique. That's right. The, Which is kind of remarkable because when you're, when you're looking at the sky from Southern Israel, that's not the first thing that strikes you is the uniqueness of the stars. But they knew that. And I, Isaiah makes the point. So I think another thing we can learn from stars is that just as stars are unique, which was so important to the ancients that Isaiah said it, so is each individual. That's right. And that's, I would say, one of the core Jewish messages that you mentioned, Hadar, one of the newest faculty members. We're excited about Hadar's Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, uh, who's, who's joining us just now. And it, oh, Mazel Tov. One of his core teachings that he's been teaching for over 50 years is the, the teaching that unlike a coin stamp, where you stamp the coin and every coin looks the same, when God created humans, even though it was in the image of God, every human looks different and is therefore unique. And that, I think, connects to your image of the stars. And, and there's also a stellar navigation. So the only way in the ancient world to navigate at night was by the stars. So if you want to find your way in the darkness, you need to use the stars. And in fact, the IDF has always used stellar navigation. To this day, the soldiers are trained in stellar navigation. It's that important even today with all the technology that the IDF uses. And the American military uses it too. Um, the American military apparently stopped using it for a short period when GPS came, then realized there was, there were, the enemy had anti-GPS, so then reinstituted stellar navigation. So the idea that you can navigate and get to where you need to be in the darkness through the stars is literally with the most sophisticated people today. I love that image. Uh, you know, it's a, st a star map taking you where you need to go. The last thing I would say about stars is that God is called Adonai Tzvaot, the Lord of hosts, and Tzva, actually, you know, from Tzva Ali Israel, armies. But the armies of God is often seen as the stars. So there's some connection between stars and angels, you know, the heavenly beings that you see when you look up in the sky. Oh, beautiful. Uh, ancient people sort of associated that with, the, with an angelic presence. And that's, I think, another association that we might make about what are we meant to strive for, uh, you know, being descended from Abraham and being, you know, uh, trying to emulate the stars, having an angelic approach to our behavior. And, and I think all these ideas and more just illustrate that great idea that you had, that there are so many truths from one passage, and here we see stars, and there are so many ways that we can think of ourselves and conceive of a moral ambition from that one reference to the stars, which has to do with quantity, but by no means only quantity. Yeah. The end of this passage actually is, is striking in that it sort of moves the ball further down the line in terms of the promises God is making, but also reveals some deep doubt that Abraham is feeling. So we could dive in and look at that if you'd like. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Absolutely. So after God renews the promise of the children, God renews the other promise that God had made to Avram chapters earlier, which is you're going to inherit the land. God says to Avram, I am the Lord who took you out from Ur Kasdim, from that old place that Avram used to live, to give you this land as a possession. And that's a powerful promise that God is making to God. But notice Avram's response. Avram says back to God, O Lord God, by what shall I know? that I can inherit it, that I will actually inherit the land. So you have this unbelievable moment where Avram is hearing the promises of God. God saying, you're going to have children, you're going to have land. And God is hearing response from Avram that's saying, by what shall I know? You know what can you give me? It's the, it's the what question that Avram is asking. So God is talking to him directly. Abraham has no question. God is talking to him directly. No question whatsoever. And yet, He's still saying to God, 
prove it. How do I know you're going to deliver what you're saying? Exactly. This is a, a great expression of Jewish faith. It's, it's no such notion as blind faith. It's a struggle with faith, even from our founding father. Exactly. Like Avram has a problem believing in God and he's talking to God, meaning he has a problem <laughs> be- believing that God can come through on the promises that God is making and is willing to explicitly question God and say, well, how, how will I know these promises will come, will come through? What do you think that we can learn from Abraham's experience of faith with God that can help us live better and more meaningful lives today? Well, I think that Avram is a powerful model of what it means to be a Jew. That is to say, as you pointed out earlier, it's not that you have perfect, unquestioning faith in everything that God is transmitting to you. It's that you're able to engage in a dialogue where questions are okay and maybe even preferred or desired. In other words, God doesn't strike Avram down in this dialogue. God supports and, and I would say actually shields Avram from that experience of anxiety and skepticism that is sort of rattling about in Avram's head. So I think we often think of like, you know, the good Jew is the one who is able to, you know, with perfect faith, declare, uh, you know, my unending uh, understanding and connection to God. And what we see here from Avram is, well, actually, the model is more complicated than that. You're allowed to ask questions and, and say wondering words like, what? So your interpretation is 15.1. It says, I am a shield for you. The way he's a shield for us, or one of the ways he's a shield for us, is by protecting us against the natural, inevitable, and perfectly acceptable difficulties with faith and relationships with God that so many people have. Exactly. In in other words, God sort of in league with us, providing us some sort of comfort and protection that allows us to express our doubts. Like in the moment of being held and shielded by God, Avram finally speaks and says, actually, I have a lot of questions that I need to say right now. And now I'm feeling safe that I can say them but I need you to reassure me because I'm not seeing the children and I'm not seeing the land yet. Right. So how does, what does this have to do with prayer? So the amazing thing about prayer in the Jewish tradition is almost all of the words of traditional prayer are drawn from the Bible. That is to say, the prayer book is almost like a re-scrambled version of the Bible. And in some ways, the only reason we could say words to God at all, given our limitations as humans, is because the words that we're saying are actually sourced in the Torah that was spoken by God in the first place. And so what we have here is embedded in that first verse in chapter 15, verse 1, when God says, I am a shield for you. That is the culmination of the first blessing of the quintessential Jewish prayer called the Amidah, where we stand in prayer before God, and it's silent devotion. And the last line of the first blessing says, blessed are you, God, shield of Abraham. Now you ask yourself, why is the opening blessing of this prayer describing God as a shield? It could have described God in so many different ways. There are no unending options. But when you understand this story as standing behind that prayer, that line of prayer, then we actually understand that one view of prayer could be, this is your moment when God is shielding you to start asking your questions and putting your doubts explicitly on the table. Fascinating. So prayer is an invitation to express doubts, not fidelity. 
Exactly. There's a moment in which we're able to recognize God as holding us, not so that we'll be able to express our perfect faith, but so that we'll be able to express all the questions that we have for God. And that, I think, is one of the core emotional undercurrents of what it means to pray. Fascinating. So as a rabbi and as a a student of prayer, I've never had a meaningful prayer experience in my life. I don't know why. I'm not justifying it. I don't know why. I just, it's just never done anything for me and I'm blaming myself. What would you say to, to me or people like me who have not been able to connect with God or Judaism through prayer, although we've been blessed to be able to do so in other ways, but just not through prayer? What am I doing wrong? Yeah, so I would say, first of all, your experience is extremely common. And in fact, a number of rabbis in the Talmud have a competition where they are trying to one-up each other by saying how hard it is for them to concentrate during prayer. And one says, oh, I count clouds in the sky. And the other says, oh, I count bricks in the ceiling. The challenge of prayer is an old one. So I don't think there's anything wrong with you. I think it is a high bar. That being said, I think there is some possible powerful experience that awaits people in Jewish prayer. And I would say there's two aspects that I would focus on. One is there's an artistry to the prayer book itself. This takes a lot of time and energy to uncover, but it's really a book of poetry. And when you do the work to understand the beauty behind the poetry, you can marvel, I think, at the creations of the prayer book and the words that were meant to recite. So one is just sort of giving the benefit of the doubt to the prayer book in the first place and say, you know, like Shakespeare, if you never studied Shakespeare, you're like, I don't understand. This doesn't make sense to me. But if you spend time with it, you're like, this is amazing. And I think the prayer book is in, in a similar category. It takes some time and some work, but there's a lot of beauty there just in terms of the language. But I think there's also a deeper connection that we're all yearning for in prayer, which goes beyond the beauty of the words. And that's the emotional experience of, I would say, yearning. A lot of prayer is about trying to connect to a God who feels distant. And whether it's through the music or through the other people or through the uh, aesthetic experience of the space that you're standing in or through your own connection to the emotions that you're feeling at that time, you know, there's a real power to the potential for prayer. And I guess I would say, if it's not working for you just yet, keep at it and try to mix things up. Like maybe it's different people, different space, different music, different time of day. There's a, a lot awaiting in the possibility of prayer. Well, and I, I, th- I think one thing you said is probably very important for prayer, which is you said different people. So I know Judaism seriously discourages solitary prayer. I mean, if, if you have to do it, you do it. It's better than nothing. But we, we very much encourage the communal experience of prayer. Correct. And of course, one of the challenges of Corona is that we're not able to do that together praying in any easy fashion. And there are moments where the Talmud does highlight certain rabbis who were able to get to mystical heights in their own personal and private prayers. But nevertheless, the the overarching thrust is really to pray together with people. And yeah, maybe it's the kinds of people who are ready for a kind of prayer experience where everybody's brought along. I don't know. I think it was Judah Halebe who said, uh, there are certain people who can pray alone, but not one exists in this generation. That's right. The, the Talmud identifies Rabbi Akiva as the person who is a model of private prayer. When he was in public, he would just be a regular 
prayer. But when he was in private, he would do a whole number of prostrations and sort of body movements that would really ramp up the intensity of the prayer experience. But it was Rabbi Akiva, you know, he's one of the great giants of Jewish history. So maybe not everybody is able to pull that off on their own. So why does Judaism emphasize the communal aspect of prayer so much? I mean, and so insistently, you know, we have the whole concept of a minion, but so much in the, the, the Jewish in Jewish prayer emphasizes that you have to do so with other people. If it's just communicating with God, which of course it can't be just that, then why is it important to do so as a group? Well, I think there is, I would say two aspects to that. One I think does relate to God. There is this Talmudic concept, a verse from the Bible that they interpret that says, am hadrat melech, the glory of the king is only in great numbers of people. That is to say, there's something about the experience of a lot of people coming together that makes us give glory to the king and also makes us sort of understand there's something powerful that's going on here. You know this from big group experiences that you've had. There's a power to just getting a lot of people together. So I think that's that's one thing. But I think there's also, uh, as you suggested, not only related to God, but our responsibilities to each other. That's part of what it means to pray communally as well. The Talmud is very concerned about the person who's going late in prayer being left behind in the synagogue and actually introduces a whole set of additional prayers so that everybody will finish at the same time. So the person who's going long can finish the obligatory prayers. Everybody else does the optional prayers, but you all leave together because you don't want to leave anybody behind. And I think there's sort of a communal responsibility that gets heightened when you are with other people in a prayer setting. Wow. I, I can't wait to read your book. When's the book coming out on prayer? The book is planning to come out in uh, next year, and I'm actually doing some teaching on an every morning basis as I'm writing the rest of it now. A tip from you, writing every day. So I'm teaching for 15 minutes every morning, 7.45 in the morning. And then from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., I'm writing it all down so that we can actually have a book to read at the end of the year. At the end of 2021? That's the plan. Wow. Well, God willing, I, I, I can't wait to read it. Now, uh, Ellie, thank you as ever for such a fascinating conversation about such um, an important part of the Bible. Now, the uh, concluding question always goes from the sacred text to uh, another text, which is um, Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says, uh, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So, Ellie, in all of your years uh, founding and running uh, Machon Hadar, being um, both an entrepreneur and a leader of other scholars, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Wow. Two things I've learned about humankind, I would say, one is, if you will it, it is no dream. The great right. statement from Herzl, Enzo uh, Agada, it's not a legend. It's actually a story that can come to real life. I think we experienced that building Hadar, but that's the story of the Jewish people and in a broader sense, all of humanity. You think about all the achievements and the accomplishments that we've done. People really do have so much potential in them and it's just a question of unlocking it. So that's one thing I, I would say about humankind. And the other is I would say that although people present often as cynical, I think underneath people are really yearning for deep connection. Whether they find that in the Bible or in prayer or in connections with each other, human beings in general are really not put on this earth to be cynical and skeptical. They're put on this earth to connect and to dive deep. 
I think that's fascinating. But why do people present as cynical then? Presenting as cynical allows you to move through the world um, without getting hurt. Because if you're too open and vulnerable, you're going to be disappointed. But I think underneath it all, underneath that casing, there really is this deep yearning to, uh, to have those, those experiences that we want to be open to. So everyone is at their core, or most people at the core are idealists. I think that's right. And, you know, life is hard and it, it turns us into cynics over and over again. But I think when we really allow ourselves to dream and to come down to the, the basic instincts that are in our heart, I think the cynicism washes away and we're really attempting to live a life that's, you know, worth living. And when it washes away, we're able to get to your first point. Because if you're a cynic, your first point really can't be actualized. You know, if we will it, it is no dream. Well, if you're a cynic, you're not going to will it. Correct. You'll never allow yourself to come up with the ideas. And you'll certainly, even if you come up with the ideas, you'll never think that they're possible. You'll think of all the people who are going to be problematic and all the institutions that are going to be against you and all the forces that are going to be deployed to make it fail. And you, you won't even get started. Exactly. And look, for so many of us, that's our daily experience. You know, cynicism often takes the day. But I think the power of, uh, of Judaism is that you can always start again. You can always wipe it away and, and really go to the core. I love that. That's right. I think it was Eli Weisel who said, uh, the secret of the Torah is not that you can begin, but that you can begin again. I think that's beautiful. Exactly. So, Ellie, thank you so much for such a fascinating discussion on so many different issues. Uh, proving the point that you made, I believe it was in a discussion that you did on, the, on your uh, Mahon Hadar site about Pesach, where you talked about multiple meanings emanating from the same text, and you've shown it to us again today. So, thank you. Thanks so much, Mark. Always great to speak with you. You are the God of the brave. If you give us a breakthrough in the